you that you have given us like-mindedness in Jesus Christ. We enjoy being together. We love greeting one another and love being in the same building together because you have made us your bride. We are your body, your family. And so, Lord, I thank you for the joy you give us as we gather. And we continue to love one another and, and show that the love that we have is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. No matter what our struggles are, what we're going through, we know that you have secured our eternity. And that gives us hope to deal with our issues. It gives us joy to know that this life is short. Eternity is coming. So, Lord, thank you for the gathering of the saints today, Lord. What encouragement this is. Lord, we thank you for this time of year. It is a great reminder, though we never forget that Christ became incarnate and took on flesh to die for us. But this year, Lord, this time of year, we really enjoy pondering this great truth. And as we do that over the next few Sundays, Lord, may it stir our hearts to be men and women, boys and girls, who investigate the text, who search out the truth for ourselves. And Lord... On those mornings when we're alone with our Bibles, Lord, may we worship you. Be, be gripped that you took our sin issue so seriously that you sent your own son and he became flesh. Lord, then that move us personally. Father, we know it moves us as a group. We get together. It's infectious, Lord. We love the teaching of Christ. But Lord, we want this to come from our inside, Lord. So cause us to be worshipers, Lord. Cause us to love you. We thank you for our missionaries scattered around the globe, Lord. Men and women who have dedicated their lives to a calling on the mission field. Many of them do not enjoy the freedoms we have. Lord, we pray for them. Give them strength. Give them strategic ideas, Lord, that help them reach their communities in these difficult days that many countries are in, Lord. Pray that the people around them who are suppressed by governments and, and people who are full of fear and hatred even, Lord, we pray that that would cause them to turn to those missionaries, the truth that they carry. Pray that the same here, Lord. Many are afraid today. We're afraid to die. We're afraid to get sick. They have no hope, Lord. And we, we, your bride, have the answer. So, Lord, we pray for the missionaries and we pray for our mission endeavors on our streets, and in our jobs, and in our grocery stores. And we be evangelists and share this great news, Lord. Father, we ask that your spirit would now attend the teaching of the word. Would it cause this preacher to speak boldly and clearly? And would it cause us to be good hearers and doers of your mighty word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christmas to the Christian is a reminder that God's promise to deal with sin came true. It's really what Christmas is, if you think about it. Let me say that again. Christmas to the Christian is a reminder that God's promise to deal with sin came true. He sent his, his son to be the one who can rescue us from the debt of sin that we owe. Well, this morning we will look at the announcement of the coming of Jesus Christ. 
It is the announcement of really the first great Christmas to come, wasn't it? Nobody was expecting this. And as we study this truth, and we, each year we spend time in different passages teaching on this truth, but as we study this again and again, I promise you, if you look intently into the Word of God, and we ask the Spirit to help us understand this, we will marvel at what happens here. You can't help but sing a, thing, sing a song like Hark the Herald Angels Sing and hear of the incarnation of Christ. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, steps into his creation. You cannot help but marvel at that, can you? The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is birthed just like the rest of us. Conception, miraculous. Holy Spirit places him there. Birth just like you and I. Humanity now becomes the Lord Jesus' main role. He is going to become perfected in his humanity, the book of Hebrews says. And so we marvel at the creator of the world being born into this world. Well, the result of this is true wonder for the Christian, true amazement. I also believe there's true humility that comes when we think deeply about the birth of Christ. We humble ourselves, don't we? We say, you did that for us, Lord. The one who has control of all things would humble himself to come and be born of a babe just like us. And so when we study this, there is great humility that comes. But there's also love and praise that comes. Ah, oh, you ought to hear these front rows here. Being up front, we can hear you sing this morning. You love this, don't you? You love this time of year, and we can hear you sing of the joy that's in your heart. So love and praise comes forth from us. Oh, you're going to see a lot of Santa Claus and a lot of fun stuff out there, and a lot of people singing, that's happiness. We're talking about real joy. Did you hear that song? Real joy comes from us. This is the result of this. We're still amazed at the lowly, unassuming, unassuming manner in which the one who has the power to save went into the world, aren't we? And there's this angel we'll see this morning. He is sent to make this announcement to this obscure town, to this obscure woman of the greatest thing that's ever happened to mankind. It's a bit mysterious, isn't it? And though the message is great, humanly speaking, the setting is not. <laughs> the setting is very lowly. And unknown except by one woman. And yet God's providence can't be missed here, can it? The almighty plan passes over the elite, passes over the elite places, and lands in a town with an obscure woman. Well, this is, of course, the first advent of our Messiah. It is the great pronouncement. It is the great advent of humiliation for the Messiah. The whole setting lends to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, he became poor. The whole setting lends towards that. And because of this, we're overwhelmed by what we call uh, the condensation, con condescending, excuse me, the condescending nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. He condescends. He comes from heaven, the heir of all things, takes on our nature in the most humbling way. It could only be 
condescending to leave heaven's throne and come to earth and be a king. There's no other way to go down. That, that's not up, right? To leave heaven's throne, to come here, that's humiliation, isn't it? But because this is somewhat beyond our comprehension to think about a creator who announced and proclaimed creation, as Pastor Brian was reading that great psalm this morning, as I thought about water clapping and mountains shining and all that was going on in that, there'll be a time when the Creator returns, His second coming to the earth, when we will see nature as God intended it to see. And as beautiful as it is out there, imagine trees without decay and air without pollution and water in purity. Imagine all of that rising up to worship this great God and Creator. But yet... At Christmas time, at this very special time, we see the one who stepped out of heaven to become poor, to become despised, to become rejected, and to ultimately suffer and die. And listen, outside of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, you don't get this, do you? You'll push your cart through Publix and you'll see somebody singing some phenomenal theology of a, of a Christmas carol, and you'll ask them, oh, isn't that a beautiful song? And get into a conversation and they have no idea of the incarnation of Jesus. But not us. <laughs> not the believer. See, we have the Holy Spirit. And that makes this time of year especially gorgeous to us, isn't it? See, this what makes what the love of God manifested to us. <laughs> As I studied this this week, I thought, Lord, I love you more when I study this because you're manifesting your love to me that you would send your son rich as the creator of the world to become poor for me. See, he's manifesting his love to us. He's showing how much he loves us. And that's what we should be reminded of this time of year. The greatest interest that anyone has is the need of forgiveness of sins. And Jesus Christ came, and the Bible says for us in Philippians 2, to have that same attitude which was in Christ, who humbled himself so he could die for us. Should we not humble ourselves to offer forgiveness to others? Should be our primary goal. I want you to turn to a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and where I want to start here, and then come back to our text that Pastor Brian read this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 16. I wrote this text on the top of my notes as I began to study this two-part lesson that I'm going to do. We'll finish this next week. This verse reminded me of the greatness of what Jesus was about to do as we study in kind of present time as we look at the text, but in reality, as I look back at all that he does, this verse became a great motivation to me this week. Notice the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, or excuse me, 16, by common confession. Now, it is said that this was something the church would often dismiss a service with, or they would stand up together and proclaim as a, as a theology, a doctrine that they believed. And, and so it's a statement that the church, particularly here, the early church held to. And so it starts out by common confession. 
church would say this together. They believe this. Now listen to this phrase here. Great is the mystery of godliness. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Great is the mystery of godliness. You know why I think it's great? Because I know I'm not perfectly godly. (laughs) Because I know what godliness is. It is the perfect reflection of God Almighty in another. And so the early church would remind themselves, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the revealing of that godliness, how we can be more like Christ. And then it begins to describe him. This mystery described, notice this, in this great statement the early church would say, he who was revealed in the flesh. Oh, that's a tremendous revelation, isn't it? He, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of all things, is revealed in flesh. See, man hadn't seen God, no one has seen God and lived, the Bible repeatedly tells us. So Christ, even in the Old Testament, was there often, maybe in the garden, maybe in many places, maybe on Mount Sinai. This was the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate when he would stand and talk to someone. But most had never seen the glory of God, and so God has now sent his Son so we know who he is. And so the Bible says he who is revealed in flesh is a great mystery of godliness. You know what another great mystery of godliness is? that he was vindicated in the Spirit. The Spirit of God, first of all, places we'll see in coming Sundays here, places this this babe, this unborn child in the womb of Mary. It's miraculous. Way beyond the lost world who fight over life right now in the Supreme Court. No comprehension of the greatness of, of what God has done, the the mystery of godliness to be in a womb there placed by the Holy Spirit. No no, No wonder they have no care for life. You wrestle with that concept for a little while and you'll guard life. And then notice this seen by angels. These are these beings. We'll take a a brief look at them this morning. These incredible beings that announce the works of God, who perform the duties of God. They're there in the announcement. They're there in the birth. They're there close by at the cross. They're there in the wilderness. They're there with the Lord Jesus Christ ministering to him. Oh, it's part of this mystery of godliness. And then this message has been now proclaimed to the nations. Think about that. Though there are still nations without the word of God, we're previously working on translations, getting missionaries there and so forth. The nations of the world as a whole have heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it didn't take long after the first church received persecution for them to spread out. And they proclaimed this truth to the nations. And notice it just wasn't proclaimed. Look at this. God saved people. They're believed on in the world. This is the mystery of godliness. That God takes ungodly people... They believe in the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. They believe that God sent him, and they become his children. It's a great mystery of godliness, isn't it? Jesus was believed on. I I, I love this. This helps me remind me we're not just a a little small group hanging out in Ormond Beach. (laughs) 
We're 2,000 years of history of Christians believing the exact same thing without changing it. Because God wrote it. It's not some uh, fable that made its way. I read some liberals this week on some of this because I every once in a while I just like to get myself stirred up. One man, clearly not a believer, said, well, this was the fable that was the strongest, and it finally made its way, and people believed this fable. Boy, it's a lot of stupid people for 2,000 years who believe the exact same message that does not change. See, it's believed on in the world. Brothers and sisters, you have 2,000 years of Christ's bride believing and worshiping what we've done this morning who have all gone before us and are in glory awaiting our arrival to worship this king of kings. And then finally, Jesus was taken up into glory. He went back where he started. And there, sits at the right hand of the Father, has all authority and all power. All things have been given to him. He's the head of the church. Everything belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. And there he waits for the completion of time. And he will come and gather all who believe upon him into one bride. And we long for this. This is what we believe. And so... It's easy to teach on the great mysteries of godliness because they all come back to Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, as you make your way back to the first chapter of Luke, the first chapter of Luke, verse 26 and 38, this morning we examine the coming of an angel, and not just any angel, Gabriel. Gabriel is coming, and he's got an announcement. And this is a story of, of, one of one of God's messengers sent from heaven to bring the greatest news the, the earth has ever heard in the most astonishing way. And brothers and sisters, we should approach this story of this announcement of Christ with awe and wonder as we strive to understand the great mystery of godliness. This is part of it. You want to know godliness? <laughs> Dive into this passage. We'll see it over and over. So, just three thoughts this morning out of this text. And I want us to see how we can grasp this great mystery. Number one, the greatest announcement is in the most unexpected places. The greatest announcement in the most unexpected places. Look at verse 26 and 27. Now, in the sixth month, that would be Elizabeth, right? Just a few verses back, Zechariah is doing his temple duties probably once in a lifetime uh, for the large amount of priests that would have been serving. His once in a lifetime going in probably to the most holy place there has a, a wonderful encounter with the Lord. And he's told that he's going to have a child. And just like the Lord said, that came true. And so now his wife is now in her sixth month of pregnancy with this promised John the Baptist, the forerunner. So it's in that time frame, helps you understand what's going on. And Elizabeth is over here and she is pregnant. And now the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. And he was sent to a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, and of the descendants of David, notice the plural, both of them, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
Well, first, it's important to discover the setting of this marvelous event. It really is a marvelous event, so we understand this story. And, and there's both a place and there's personalities that enhance this extraordinary setting. Well, the place is Galilee. Isn't that interesting? Not Judea. Not Jerusalem. But the home, a home, a resident of Mary, the future earthly mother of Jesus. Again, notice it's not the temple, not the meeting place where God through time has spoke to the prophets and given to the law, given the law and the prophecy of the nation. It's not there. And yes, Judea was a central place. It was a central figurehead. It was the, the central part of the land of Israel where God had chosen his son to come and do his finished work. He will die there and be resurrected there. And though I, I thought long about this, though Jerusalem is the key, and Jesus himself says he calls Jerusalem the city of the king in Matthew chapter 5, the very dwelling place of God at times. But despite that, God's marvelous heavenly messenger is sent to earth and he's instructed to deliver the greatest message to mankind has ever heard. He passes over Judah. He sails by Jerusalem. He goes by the magnificent rebuilt temple by Herod and Gabriel sets his wings. He lands in Galilee in a place called Nazareth, which was held in contempt by the Jews to speak to a woman in obscurity. Stunning, isn't it? It's the reason why the Jews often didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. How can anything good come from that? When Philip is telling Nathanael about Jesus, and Philip was explicit in John chapter 1, he said, I think we found the Messiah in a sense he's saying that. He goes to Nathanael and he says, hey, but this is where he came from. And Nathanael's words are, does anything good come from Nazareth? John chapter 7, the crowds are wrestling whether Jesus is the Christ, the Bible says, the Christ, the Messiah. And they're arguing back who he may be, who he may not be. And others, the Bible says, others still say, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? A little later in verse 52, they answered him, these are the Pharisees, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You know, the men who thought they knew the Old Testament often didn't know it well. Isaiah chapter 9, that great text that Pastor Steve uh, used at our Christmas banquet this last Friday of these four names of the Messiah, it starts out this way, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Now listen to this. In earlier times, he, God, treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are right where Jesus was born and raised. Right in the heart of Galilee. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. See, at this time of this great announcement, Galilee was filled with Gentiles. It had been overrun by what the Jews would call pagans. Their homeland now was filled with all kinds of people. In fact, this was the home in the palace of King Herod. A man whose heart was so sinful and so extremely jealous killed his own family members. 
It was a land full of murder, corruption, demoralization of people. See, to the Jew, it was preposterous idea that the Messiah would come from a place like Nazareth of Galilee. But Jerusalem, why not Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the pride of Judah? That's passed over. Gabriel seems to glide right by the city of gold. Nazareth is an interesting town. It's located about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. They had a slang word for it. They call it the halfway house between cities like Tyre and Sidon. And there was a great highway that passed through there. Many of you know Nazareth sat on a top of a hill, almost a big cliff. There was quite a drop off on parts of it. The bottom of that hill was a great highway that brought commerce and traveled back and forth from northern tribes and northern area down all the way to Jerusalem and back. On this highway, you would find anything from Roman soldiers, Greek merchants, Gentile travelers, and even Jewish priests would walk on it. Many believe this is the highway that Jesus was speaking about in his parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10. I think often when we think about this setting here, we, we let our minds fantasize just a little bit. and We, we think that Nazareth was, it was maybe this really nice little quaint town. I've seen Sunday school material printed that often projects it as this little quaint little village or hamlet. A few hundred people sitting on their front porch drinking lemonade. Well, the reality, Nazareth was probably at this point somewhere between fifteen to 20,000 people living in it. And it was full of pagans, according to the Jews. The important city of Galilee was really geographically strategic for Roman soldiers. They had an outpost there and a place for other troops to stop as they traveled back and forth. The Gentile caravans were known to rest and recover there. And trading posts soon developed and commerce was happening. And it led to all kinds of cheating and all kinds of problems and corruption ran rampant. So then, it makes you understand, when Nathaniel says, could anything come from this place, he's very familiar with it. If you trace Nathaniel's name, you find out later, as the list of disciples are given, that he comes from Canaan. He's, excuse me, Cana. He, he's just a few miles away. It's not very far where Cana is. And doubtlessly, Nathaniel knew how bad and how depraved the city of Nazareth was. One commentator I read said that Nazareth was perhaps one of the most corrupt towns to be found in all of that region when this messenger showed up. Luke chapter 4, we know this to be true. Jesus goes back to his hometown. His ministry has began. He goes to the synagogue. He begins to read from the scriptures. And they go, oh, who is this? But the moment he says, you have hard hearts, God has brought judgment onto you. He's passed over you for Canaanite women. And he gives, he, gives, he gives several examples here. They grab him and try to throw him off that cliff. That's how they deal with justice. Nazareth is not probably the little story in the Sunday school material we were raised with. It was full of depravity. But in the middle of this town, <laughs> there's a young girl named Mary. And she's going to find favor with the Almighty. 
And she's going to be granted, think about this, she's going to be granted the ministry of carrying the gospel. We all carry the message of the gospel. She's carrying the gospel incarnate. Now, notice in verse 26 and 7 here that Gabriel's past Judea and Jerusalem, the city of the great king. He's past the temples, and he enters a home. I think that's fascinating to me. He enters a home. See, previously, the ministry of the law was understood by the temple. It was national. Moses would receive the law. He would stand up as we're studying Leviticus, and he would proclaim what the law was to the people. It was national. You gathered together, you heard it together. But isn't it interesting that Gabriel sent to a home, an individual's place, and the gospel, in, a, in, a, in essence, begins in a very personal way, doesn't it? It didn't come to Jerusalem, didn't come to the temple, didn't come in this grand explanation. It starts with a godly young lady. But with all that said, something marvelous is about to happen. And heaven's watching Heavens, the heavens are watching. It is incredible as we think about the angels that watch what's going on. This is why Peter wrote, as he studied the Old Testament, he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They're studying their own writings, right? They're seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as de uh, depicted, pre uh, predicted to the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now listen to this. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. They're, they're writing to help us understand there is this Christ coming. This is where we get biblical theology from. There's this flow coming to the cross. And then he says this. But you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and listen to this phrase, things which angels long to look into. So there is this angelic audience watching as Gabriel sent with this phenomenal message to this obscure town and this obscure woman. These angels were watching one of the highest-ranked angels deliver a message of good news to people steeped in depravity. Why, God? Why are they not like us, maybe the angels will say, a third of us rejected you and you cast them out permanently from your presence and they will go to the pit someday. Why are you having so much grace on these can you imagine the angels watch him soar by the city of the king, watch him soar by the temple and not stand there and stay there and land in a home? See, God's saving grace was coming to earth and has got the full attention of the angelic world and not just the elect angels, but guess who else is watching? <laughs> the fallen angels, Satan himself paying attention to what God is doing. Now we come to marry this image bearer. She's just like us, despite what false teachers have taught. God's image bearers now have sinned, and the curse has been brought on them, the land, the cities, even the temple is degraded. People are consumed with self-righteousness. 
And God passes all of these people, all these people who thought they were something because they, they were in some kind of line of something or, 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 or had some kind of power or authority, passes all of that for a home in a corrupt town. Realtors say this, location, location, location. <laughs> I thought about that. If you're really Jesus, why, why weren't you not revealed in the temple? Why come through sinners like Mary, they would say. Well, God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So this highly unlikely place of Nazareth is where God in his sovereign predestined plan decides to announce the coming of the Messiah. Do you get the view now? A little, a little room in a corrupt town. A glorious angel arrives. Second thought. The personalities involved in the greatest announcement. Well, there's great personalities involved in these great announcements here. We see this in chapter 27 and 28. First, we notice she's a virgin. She's engaged to a man. So she's in this betrothal process. And this man has a name. His name is Joseph. He too, like Mary, they are descendants. Notice the plural of that, descendants of David. And this virgin's name is Mary. But there's an announcement here. Notice coming in, Gabriel says to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Well, very little known is known about um, Gabriel and these angels. We see announcements that happen, but all we know is Gabriel is, is, is an often uh, messenger that God uses. He carries many great messages. But here's what we do know about Gabriel as we think about personalities that are in this, is Gabriel perfectly displays what God says about an angel in Psalms 103, verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, you his angels. Listen to this. Mighty in strength. We know that Michael fought off Satan getting a message to Daniel. These beings are mighty in strength. And notice they perform his word. They obey the voice of his word, the Bible says. Bless the Lord, all of you host, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his hands. They really are the hands of God. They go out and accomplish things for him. And it says, in all the places he has dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And so we see Gabriel there. We're not going to talk too much about him. The, the highlight of personality here is Joseph and Mary, aren't it? These are the personalities the Bible highlights, and, and they are in the text, those, these personalities, they're human. <laughs> they're human. Joseph is the future husband's name. We're told not much about him in this text, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25 in chapter 13, verse 55, give us fuller reason. There's two aspects of the Bible highlights. One, the Bible says that he's a righteous man. We need to know that about him. This does not mean he gained righteousness on his own. This means he chose to do what was right consistently according to God's word. He's much like Noah, Job, Simeon, who they will take the baby to in the coming days. He's much like them. He was going to need his own earthly sons, his son that was born of an earthly mother, not, not his biological son, but yet his son as he cares as in a father position. He's going to need his righteousness. 
to enter the kingdom. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? But the scriptures teach us that Joseph was a good man. He set an example as a godly character, and you can study that. I, every time I studied Joseph's life and what he had, these massive decisions, he had to stay or leave, and, and what was going to happen to Mary, a lot had to do with his decisions. You see the godly character of Joseph, particularly in Matthew chapter 1. Doubtlessly, he was probably older than Mary. We know that because he seems to be gone at the cross. But he's trustworthy. He's an upright man who loved God in this world. The second aspect that we learn about in chapter 13, verse 55, and this is very interesting, is he was a carpenter. It says, Jesus was the son of a carpenter. I like that. This is a godly man who's godly at home and on the job. The Bible says Joseph was a righteous man, and yet he was a carpenter. Can those two things be put together? Yes, if you've been born again. See, I, I like that. I, I see that character come out of this. God uses men and women that do not come to him on their own righteousness, but choose to obey and live according to God's righteousness, and God uses men and women like this. I think this role of carpenter tells us that he kept his testimony. He kept his character in a depraved world. But Luke's account is, is mainly focusing here on Mary. The story is about the incarnation of Christ, and the personality here turns to Mary. I love studying on Mary, because where the Roman Catholic Church has turned Mariology into idolatry, the true Christian church has often recognized her. I think sometimes we see false teachings run with something and we're afraid to teach what's true. This woman, according to these verses, was a godly woman. And she needs to be honored, not worshipped. Notice in verse 27 that the scripture here and both Matthew 1 and Matthew 3 tell us that these two are from the line of David. Good exegesis looks at the word in there where it says descendants and notices the plural. And so the Bible takes painstaking detail to prove to us the genealogy of both Joseph and Mary are directly connected to David. So when Gabriel appears to Mary on this night or whenever this was, it doesn't tell us, there's no mistake He's been given clear directions to make an announcement to the seed, a distant daughter of King David, who is from the seed of Abraham, who came from the promise of Adam and Eve in the garden, where God himself proclaimed that a male child would come, one day rise up from their seed and crush the head of Satan. This thing is detailed. Gabriel isn't searching around for the right person. He doesn't hesitate as he flies over Jerusalem and the temple. He knows right where he's going. And I think that makes this greeting that Gabriel gives in verse 28, look at this, oh, favored one. It causes it to be an astounding announcement, but with incredible accuracy. Incredible accuracy. I know it's painstaking to read all the names in, in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and then Luke chapter 3 to go through them. But every once in a while, you should read it. 
It's God proving that he is not a liar. That he promised from the seed, from Adam and Eve, down through Abraham, down through David, and all the way to Mary and Joseph, he would bring one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so Mary was in the line of this coming Messiah. And there was no one else that would match the credentials needed to carry out this great ministry of the earthly mother of Jesus. Now notice Gabriel locates this preordained daughter of David, the seed of Adam and Abraham. And there's incredible joy in this announcement. Greetings, favored one. The Greek word is two words that have the root word of grace to them. The greetings full of grace. And not just grace, but grace given by God. It's a, it's a mixture of rejoicing and acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, all wrapped up in one greeting from this archangel. Mary, I think this is what he's saying, you are the one. You're the one whom God chose not only to be in the lineage of the Messiah, but God has chose you to shower his grace upon. This Greek word, again, is much connected to the grace of God. And this angel, in other words, is saying, because you are endowed with the grace of God, the Lord is with you. This is, this is before he tells her what's going to happen. I think he's setting her up, right? <laughs> I'm going to tell you something so spectacular, but you need to know this first. <laughs> There's not a mistake here. This God has ordained this. You are in the line, both you and your future husband, and God is going to pour his grace on you. And I don't know how you would receive this as a 16, 15-year-old girl. God wants her to know she's full of grace. Notice in verse 27 that Mary is declared a virgin. This is important. There are no two meanings of this word. It's simple. It's self-evident in its definition, isn't it? And any of us with any age at all know exactly what it means, don't we? It's not some hidden meaning. Mary had believed God. She believed God and she believed that honoring God with her purity and her marriage was what God wanted her to do. And God recognized that. And now in the middle of this betrothal, in the middle of this engagement, which would last for a year, she has remained obedient to her God in her personal life and this godly character is being revealed by this greeting of Gabriel. That's fascinating, isn't it? And so this position of earthly mother of Jesus did not create the character in the office, and this is where so many get it wrong, but her character in the grace of God created the qualifications of her office. The Catholic Church has ruined that. <laughs> she is a product of one chosen by God, graced by God, to become the one who carries the baby Jesus. Well, here we find Mary living in Nazareth, deep in this 
depraved area, captured by the darkness of Satan's rule. But Mary has the bloodlines of David pumping through her. And the seed of Abraham and Adam is within her. And she's living a simple life, probably quiet. She's trusting in the God of her forefathers. And God now proclaims her purity, sets her apart to show that there's going to be no human involvement in the conception of this child. You'll even look in our doctrinal statement on this church website. We speak of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's paramount. If Joseph has anything to do with the conception of Jesus, we go to hell. That's how stark that reality is. So Gabriel's there to pronounce her purity to show humans don't have involvement in this. This is something the Holy Spirit's going to do. Third, we come to the response to this great announcement. And this will be our last point, and we'll pick this up next week. Look at verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement. She kept pondering about what kind of salutation, what kind of greeting this was. This word perplexed, or maybe your Bible translated it greatly or deeply troubled here. It's a compound word. It's only used. This compound word is only used here. But it comes from another word that we see the word often translated trouble, the, the main root trouble, Zechariah. Zechariah says it in uh, chapter 1, verse 12. He was troubled with the announcement of the angel there. It's an interesting word. Tyndale, in his translation years ago, translated abashed, meaning mortified. It, it carries the idea of, of being very agitated, yet greatly disturbed at such phenomenal news. You see how, we're try, how hard it is to try to explain this word of what she was going through. She's maybe 16. She's in a room, this Gabriel that's come from the presence of God, so he's blazing in glory, um, reflecting God, now lights up her life and tells her, oh yeah, here's what we're doing. <laughs> you can imagine what she was going through. I thought about this a little bit, whether she believed in angels or not believed and how much the Pharisees or the Sadducees had an effect in her life. If she was raised by the Sadducees, she wouldn't believe in angels. Now, that got changed really quickly. <laughs> if she was raised in the Pharisees' track of, of theology, she would have believed in angels. But regardless, this was a stunning event, wasn't it? But notice to her amazement and wonder, this radiant presence of an angel reflecting the glory of God's now in her home. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's the temple. That's where the glory of God comes. That's where God speaks and delivers messages and all of that. What's he doing in my home? See, there's a great perplexity to this. There's a great troubling. Doubtlessly, she's agitated in some way. She is now in the presence of this being that she probably couldn't even explain. On top of all that, this angel set by God and granting her the favor of the Almighty. And being told from this brilliant, blazing, bright angel that she's endowed by the grace of God is probably beyond this young girl's comprehension. Clearly, she's conscious of her own character, I would imagine. She's a godly woman, but she understands she's a sinner. She knows her own heart. She later writes this in a tremendous prayer. We call it Mary's Magnificent. 
She rejoices in her Savior there, but she talks about her internal need to be rescued by her God and Savior. So I think this helps you grasp her astonishment a little bit. She's not born perfect as so many have misskewed her to be. She's a sinner. She needs, listen, she needs the whole death of her son to save her. And yet God has given her grace through this. But notice, her response helps us understand. Verse 34, without a moment's hesitation, we see a clear transparency of Mary's heart revealed when she says, how can this be since I am a virgin? So she, in this astonishment, in this uh, great <laughs> perplexed state she's in, as she hears this message that she is going to have this child, her, her heart just comes out. Well, how can this be? I've never known a man another statement that protects the deity of Jesus Christ right from her mouth. He's got to be God. And then, furthermore, we see that Gabriel answers your question out of this. We'll look at this more in-depthly next week. And we see the humility by the words that pass through her own lips when she says, Behold the bondservant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Man, the personality of this girl draws us to her. She's a godly young woman. And she's still getting her mind around, there's an angel in my room. And she has the wherewithal, the character of loving what God loves in order to say, I'm your bondservant, I'll do whatever you ask. Today, Christianity struggles with that, don't they? We look at the word of God, we look at society and go, it doesn't match. We're going to be weird. We're going to, be, we're going to stand out. Are you willing to obey God's word no matter what people think about you? What a great model she is, isn't she? She's precious. See, Mary is God's elect for the fulfillment of this tremendous role, the mother of the Messiah. And she takes this role. <laughs> she takes this role, but but never truly doubtlessly understands the depth of it till the day of Pentecost, probably. It might be at Pentecost where Mary goes, my son died for me. And she honors God with her life, even though she doesn't fully understand this child that's in her womb. Think about this. For many years, she walked in the presence of veiled, radiant beauty, holding the hand of God incarnate, while still in the shadows of the mystery of, of godliness in the darkness of Nazareth. Isn't that astounding? We sing songs like, Mary, did you know when you kiss the face of Jesus, you kiss the face of God? I think that starts to help you start thinking a little bit how this mom walking through the dirty streets of Nazareth holding the Son of God's hand and not understanding till Pentecost what he was here for completely. This is an amazing story, isn't it? What grace of God to display such patience as his son grows in stature and wisdom. And as Hebrews says, he becomes perfect through suffering and obedience. What grace of God. And so I wrap this message up with 
reminding you that God sends his highest ranking angel with the greatest astonishing proclamation to God's elect, that is Mary, that he's going to endow her with grace and she's going to become an instrument to carry the gospel so that all of us would hear it. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 said, but when the fullness of time came, all those descendants, all that long list in Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 and, and 1 Chronicle, nine chapters in 1 Chronicle, name after name after name, the book of Matthew, your New Testament starts with 17 verses of names most of you can't pronounce. Fullness of time. Two individuals dedicated to trusting in God walked righteously. And God sent a son forth, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that they might receive adoptions of sons. Christmas ought to make a shout. What are you going to do with Jesus this Christmas season? Father, thank you for time just to tiptoe through this text, Lord. Thank you for exposing us to the deep nature of the truth of this text. It's not some quaint little story. It is profound truth that helps us understand how the Son of God was free from the corruption of man. It helps us understand that God had a perfect plan as this seed came from Adam to Abraham to David and all those in between and down to this couple. And time was now fulfilled. It was the end of the line. And there came Jesus. Lord, the world has robbed you of your glory in this Advent season. And though we enjoy many things of presence and trees and family, and God, help us reclaim this in our own lives. This astounding and marvelous yet mystical mystery of the godliness that we see in this. This is an amazing mystery here that you have revealed as we study God's word. Help us grasp this. Help us to be overwhelmed by the beauty of our Savior this Christmas season. Lord, we thank you for a church that holds to this truth. Keep us here, Lord. Do not let us wander. May you hear our worship throughout the season as we adore your Son. In Jesus' name. Amen.